Friendship power flop. Friendship power flop. Let's go shonen flop. Let's go shonen flop. Welcome to this episode of Shonen Flop, where we talk about manga series and Shonen Jump that didn't make it big. I'm David. I'm Jordan. And this week, we're talking about Time Paradox Ghost Rider. And we're joined by our guest, Chris, from Play Comics. Thank you for giving me an excuse to read my first ever manga ever. Out of the series we've covered so far in Shonen Flop, actually, you you locked out pretty well. You locked out hard. Or I guess, Tom, when we read Matsumo Security, and I was like, Tom, usually these are atrocious. And you got very lucky that this was actually, like, readable. Yeah. I was really looking forward to reading something super horrible, because I like super horrible things. I mean, you know, as long as they're bad. Like, if they're super racist or anything, that's one thing, and that, those can all just burn in hell. But things that are just bad are fun. Yeah. Oh, if you want to talk about a racist manga, we, uh, <laughs> oh, we have one <laughs> in our In Case of Emergency box called Tokyo Shinobi Squad, where one of our guests said, I cannot be on an episode about the series because of the implications of it. <laughs> yes. If you want to read something that's terrible, you can always you can always just read Bone Collection. Bone Collection was bad, but I didn't think it was atrocious. If you want to read atrocious, you should read either SWAT or Beast Children. Yeah, Beast Children is kind of, I think, still the pinnacle. Yeah, Beast Children was not principal. No. And you, listener, if you don't know what we're talking about, you should check out our episode three or four, Beast Children, with special guest Dan Pacora, who actually will be giving a shout out to the end of this episode. So it's a nice way of tying things in. I mean, honestly, you should just listen to all of our episodes. You should listen to every episode and then listen to Beast Children again. Yes. Why haven't you done that already, actually? What the hell? I don't know. Actually, Beast Children's one of our most listened to episodes, so maybe people just listen to that episode, actually. (laughs) Sometimes I use it to listen to as I fall asleep. Oh, well, there you go. I think that while we've got manga on the mind, why don't we get to the heart of it and start actually going into some details about Time, Paradox, Ghost Rider. Man, what a title. I was just going to say, first things first, that title rules. It does. Why don't I start off by just giving kind of some of the more actual, like, meta details. Time Paradox Ghost Rider actually is interesting in that it's this fairly uncommon trend where it is both a writer and an artist. This is probably the third series I think we've covered where someone had split duties, like Del Symphony last episode. And so this was written by Ichima Kenji, who created a series called Bukura no Q, which ran for 46 chapters, which still isn't super successful, but definitely a lot better than how this series did. And the art was by Date Sunihiro, who did the art on a number of series, in particular Tokyo Wonder Boys and Cross Account. He also did some one-shots, but nothing he's ever done has made it past four volumes, so neither of these guys have really had much success in their careers, unfortunately. Every time that we've done these manga where it's like a split author and artist, it really helps the art. Yeah, for sure. I actually didn't realize it was a split, and then I noticed, and I was like, this explains a lot why the art is so good, but we can definitely get into that into the positive section. And then just to finish things up, though, this ran from May 17th to August 30th, 2020. This is the most recently canceled series that we haven't yet talked, and so it ended up being 14 chapters, plus an epilogue, which apparently has never been translated, because they just kind of gave up on translating the series, because they were like, we already canceled it, we don't really care, and that made up two volumes. I want to read that. I do, too. I do three. That has to happen. This ties in really good into us actually talking about the plot of the series. So, Jordan, why don't you lead things off by going to the details of what we know, though, of course, we just can't get into the epilogue since it's not available. Okay. Time Paradox Ghost Rider is the story of Tepe Sasaki, a failed manga artist trying to get into Shonen Jump. Home after his latest rejection, his microwave is struck by lightning and spits out a copy of Shonen Jump ten years into the future. One of the series, White Knight, is so great he copies it as a one 
one-shot. It not only gets published, but becomes a huge hit. One problem, however, the future creator of the series, Itsuki Aino, ends up becoming his assistant. Sasaki has to deal with the harsh reality of being a manga creator, while also dealing with feelings of inferiority due to his plagiarism. To make matters worse, he finds out that in the future, Itsuki has died, and now he's tasked with continuing her legacy in the present with no material to adapt, while also needing to prevent the future where she dies. Despite his efforts, he fails, as Aino, who has become a manga creator in her own right, has overworked herself to death. Sasaki is sucked into the microwave and meets the embodiment of creativity. It turns out that in every timeline, Aino ends up dying from exhaustion due to her dedication to creating manga for the whole world to enjoy. And in this timeline, Sasaki was meant to be a villain that would discourage her. Sasaki makes a deal with the entity and is sent five days back in time, except for all time but him is frozen. Sasaki now has to work in his own private world to create the perfect manga series, and he works and works and works until after more than ten years he's done it. He gives Aino the series and she thinks it's the most perfect series ever made, making her realize she used to enjoy creating art for the sake of creation, rather than to just entertain everybody in the world. I was very much not expecting that ending. Yeah. It's just cool how he was like in a time loop, and it was interesting how like he keeps like giving, I'm just gonna call that entity God, because they don't really give it a name, and like God is like, are you sure? This is it. You only get one try. If this isn't good enough, you know, she's gonna die, and so he just, like, keeps second-guessing himself, and I think it's, like, his fourth attempt where he literally is just making, like, a 150-chapter series, and he's like, no, this isn't good enough, and just starts from scratch again. Yeah. I mean, David, I'll tell you who that embodiment of imagination is. It's the author. That is a moment when the author is talking to his own character. It gave me a very strong... Animal Man? Well, I was going to say for spoiler warning, but yeah, so spoilers for a series that came out like 25 years ago. Shout out to this dude on Discord who said we give unmarked spoilers, so this one's for you. (laughs) So at the end of Animal Man, and then Chris, I don't know if you've read Grant Morris's run of Animal Man? I haven't. It's a terrific read. I highly recommend it. But what happens in the end is Grant Morrison, who is a very famous comic writer, meets Animal Man, and they just like go for a walk talking about what it means to be like a fictional character and being a comic book writer. That scene just reminded me so much of it, which is great because that last Animal Man volume like changed how I view comics. Like it's fucking incredible. I highly recommend it. I actually, I feel like I'm going to go reread it after this. Uh, Chris, do you feel like there's any plot details that maybe we didn't note in the description? And Jordan, thank you for reading that. No problem. I mean, the main thing that really stuck out at me was when Aino came up to Sasaki, I thought there was going to be big old fighting. Yeah. Where instead it was, oh, you're my hero. You made this cool thing. We must be like soulmates. <laughs> yeah, she's kind of crazy. I do want to say there is something left out of that plot summary. When Sasaki first finds the copy of Shonen Jump from 10 years in the future, it disappears, which they don't explain, and that's kind of one of the few plot holes here. So he thinks, oh, I hallucinated that. So for the first chapter that he writes, he believes that it came from his head. Like, he doesn't realize that he's plagiarizing until the next issue of Shonen Jump comes out Mm-hmm. So we've gone into a little bit and talked a little bit details of the characters' personalities. Let's actually get into exploring them further. So, Jordan, why don't you like start us off by talking about the actual main character, Sasaki Tepe? So the main character's name is Sasaki Tepe. He grows up, he makes comics, and everyone around him, all his friends and his family are like, wow, you're amazing, you're fantastic, you're really good. And then like he goes to school and people like give him some awards and stuff, but then he gets out, and even though most of his life people have been telling him, oh, you're great. 
great. He just cannot get published. He keeps submitting what they call storyboards to uh, Shonen Jump to this one editor who just rips him to shreds every single time. And honestly gives great critique. Yeah, the guy is actually a very good editor. I still love the moment where when he finally submits the White Knight pilot and it gets picked up, the guy is like, oh, I guess you're an editor now. And the head chief is like, didn't you always say you never wanted to work with him again? And then they actually have a different editor. Because <laughs> I was totally expecting like this like asshole editor to just be the character and then he never shows up again because they didn't put him as his editor. You know what, man? I want to defend that editor, okay? Look, Sasaki keeps coming in, keeps handing him this shitty manga every fucking day. And every time the editor takes time out of his day to read through his manga and say, this is why it failed, this is why it's not good. And, like, the guy has work besides this, and Sasaki just barges in on him right when he's about to go into a meeting. If I'm that editor, I'm like, fuck you, dude. I'm about to go into a goddamn meeting. That's completely fair. Yeah. One of the funny things about Sasaki is it says three days from now, the day after this election meeting, I'm going to turn 25. And that's presented as very old, which is a 29 year old hurt real bad. Well, I was actually thinking about that because that actually is fairly old on the age spectrum of Shonen Jump protagonists. One thing I thought that was really cool about the manga Kaiju number eight is that the main character is 32 years old. Yeah, that is interesting. Or like Spy Family, the guy's 30, but those are digital-only series where I guess that's fine. In an actual by-the-book print series, I can't think of a Shonen Jump series where the protagonist is over 20 years old. When you have a comic, you make the protagonist the age of your target audience. Like, you don't always do that. That's just generally what happens. That's why every Shonen Jump protagonist is at least nominally 14, even if they look 28. Yeah. So I actually think that it is really interesting that the main character is like 10 years older. Mm -hmm. And then I really like him as a character. He's got a good heart like that scene with the tree where he grabbed a balloon from a kid but then he like fell out of a tree in the process. Yeah. Shows just how he throws himself at other people's problems regardless of the impact of himself. He has like bandages on his hand at all times because he just overworks himself too much to draw manga. A lot of this manga I feel is kind of a metaphor for like you know imposter syndrome and stuff like that and his struggle to want to make the best work he can while also being true to him himself, but also acknowledging that he has to take influence from something. As an artist, like, I related to a lot of his struggles. I felt that that was a very real feeling. Most definitely. And just, like, how we talked about, he's an empty person at times, and he clearly has some very severe psychological issues, which just was such an unexpected theme for a Shonen Jump manga. Spoilers, Chainsaw Man is really dealing with mental illness right now in a way that a lot of people were not expecting. So it seems like maybe there's just a shift in what is considered acceptable material for Shonen Jump manga. Well, the fact that Chainsaw man even is published in shonen jump which i don't think would have been possible 10 years ago because it's not a coincidence this series came out this year and is dealing with mental health absolutely it ran during corona there is something extremely timely about this manga you know we have times where uh it was raining and he couldn't buy an umbrella because he said that was five days worth of food for him right a lot of modern day economic anxieties that are tossed in there because there's that, there's the fact that he doesn't want to go home and admit to his parents and everybody from his hometown that he's failed as a manga artist and writer. It's just a lot of wanting to keep up with the idea that everybody put in his head his whole life that he does really good making this manga. 
Yeah, and actually, one of the things that I liked most about his character and kind of this manga in general is when he's talking to the god figure, he says, in the alternate timeline where I didn't do this, what happened is you actually quit submitting to Shonen Jump. You went back home and got a job, but you kept making manga the whole way. And then eight years later, you submitted a one-shot to Shonen Jump and got accepted. And that submission is what inspired Aino to create White Knight. I thought thought that that was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Why don't we go into the other main character of the series? So her name is Ainu Itsuki. And as we talked about in the plot summary, she is the actual creator of the White Knight series that he's been plagiarizing. And so he essentially is meeting her when she's about 17 years old. And just because for context, she makes a series when she's in her late 20s. And she ends up becoming his assistant. And really, she is just kind of very eccentric. She threatens to stab him with like an art pen if he stops making like manga. Because she's like, manga is just like the fabric of society through having entertainment, which is really why she pushes herself so hard for any series she does to the point where she literally dies by overexhausting herself because she doesn't want to sacrifice quality, so she has no assistance because she wants to do everything. So she's just working like 12-hour days every single day, you know, for months until she just passes out and dies in her artist studio. And this is like when she's like 18 years old. It's actually really sad. Throughout the whole manga, she keeps saying, I want to make a manga that everybody in the world can enjoy. And she does it. But the process of doing it is so hard on her that it completely destroys her to the point where she loses the ability to even remember why she made manga in the first place, which is like, obviously exhaustion literally kills her, but I think that is what metaphorically kills her. I completely agree. She is absolutely kind of an eccentric character. She's supposed to be like a shut-in rather than... Like what Sasaki kind of did is he made manga and then was constantly showing it to people who tell him if it's good or not. Whereas what Aino does is she kind of locks herself in her room and just draws all the time. So she just has a ton of ideas. And she's currently, at this point at age 17, building up what would become White Knight. But obviously the version that Sasaki he gets is after 10 years of development so it's not as good also she has an interesting backstory where she's friends with like a manga creator it's kind of remind me a little bakuman which is a series i will definitely do draw more comparisons because that was also a series about getting published in shonen jump but he leaves her like a collection of literally every single manga that has ever been published in shonen jump which i thought was really interesting yeah so it's just been like woven into the fabric of her blood how she would just sit in the park every day with this old manga artist to just talk to him and that's really where she gets her inspiration well especially coming after she was saying that her dad said manga was stupid and pointless I think it's sort of hinted at in like one line, and I liked how they did this. The spirit of imagination is her father, and that was him trying to put her in a situation where she would never have access to manga, so that she wouldn't grow up and kill herself through exhaustion. Ooh, I didn't even catch that. We've talked about the two main characters. I think, why don't we just take like maybe a minute to go through the three other named characters where I think, yeah, I think literally five characters have names in this entire series. So Chris, would you like to just kind of fire off real quick the three assistants and give like a five second summary of each one of them? So Akaishi Kenje is very excited about everything. He's always going around and yelling at everything. He's that character that I would see in anime that was just always yelling about everything, no matter what he was actually feeling. You've got Yamane Jiro, who is a professional professional assistant, kind of being the dad of everybody, making sure everything is working. And I kind of wonder why he's not making his own manga if he's good enough to be a pro assistant for that long, but maybe he just knows that that's where he can find his nice work-life balance. 
not every person on the planet has super high aspirations. And so some people are like, I am content. And it sounds like he's just that where he thinks that being an assistant is a perfect balance of being creative, but also not having the insane workload or standards. Yeah. Well, it's also possible that he's kind of in a similar situ- situation to Sasaki where he keeps submitting his work and it gets rejected, but he still works as an assistant. I thought about that, but they never mention it. And they also say his title is professional assistant, unlike the other assistants. Let's be real. They don't really go that in depth with these characters. And then how about the last character? Igarashi Hajame. He's quiet and he's super deadpan about everything. And honestly, I think he'd be great to work with because you're going to get what he thinks if you ask him a question, no matter what. <laughs> he was my favorite assistant. I just thought he was like hilarious how he was just super deadpan about everything. <laughs> and he was inspired by Sasaki's work, which was cool. <laughs> it really surprised me that the editors weren't named. Like, I get why in the story, why they weren't, because they weren't there a lot. But thinking back on it, it was like, hmm, why didn't they give them a name real quick? You mean like that one editor who's like a very nice, like jovial, older guy who's like, oh, Sasaki, that's okay. Let me let me read your manga. I'll give you a chance. Yeah, I mean, you're the editor in chief. Like, they didn't even say, oh, look, it's editor in chief Bob. <laughs> I thought it was funny that they made the editor in chief like the wisest older man stereotype because I just feel like that was a message to the actual editor of Shonen Jump. Like, <laughs> hey, look how cool you are. Let's keep this going, huh? <laughs> That's fair. And then I think the little like nitpicks we're talking about, like how some characters that should have had names weren't given names, is just a good segue into us really shifting gears into the idea of what the series really just didn't do so well. So, Chris, why don't you lead things? off with really kind of what you thought some of the weaknesses of the series were. So one of the things that really got me was that first issue of Shonen Jump that came back just disappeared. And in the moment, that's not a big deal to me because it's the first issue. It's the only thing he's seen. He thinks he's hallucinated everything. It's fine. But then every other issue that comes by, they don't really say anything about it sticking around or not. So I'm like, I'm just thinking in my head, okay, they're still disappearing. Then eventually in the series, you see a whole fucking shelf full of issues of Shonen Jump. (laughs) So why does everything else get to stick around? Yeah, I had that exact same question. Like, I kind of thought what they were going to do is that, like, he only gets the Shonen Jump issue for a certain amount of time, and then he has to draw based on, like, what he remembers or something. But no, he gets the Shonen Jump issues from that point on. It's not really addressed. I was expecting that too, where that was like how they would leech in the creativity. Cause rather than the whole direction of, oh, he has to go on his own because the creator died. I thought it was going to be like, maybe it's like shorter and shorter amounts of time and the like time machine is weaning him off. So he has to become more and more reliant on his own skills. Like maybe he has like a day at first and then like a few hours and then he's getting minutes and like he's like can't even finish chapters at the end. And he's like, I really got to do this on my own. Yeah. We could talk about how we did differently in terms of if that would have been better, but it's certainly the direction I was anticipating. And so the current state, it just seems like it was inconsistent with the rules of the universe with that first disappearing issue. Maybe there's going to be a chapter where he finds it like behind his couch and that's how they retconned it. It's like, oh, he legitimately lost it rather than something like magical happening to it. It occurred to me that maybe you're supposed to infer that the little robot spirit of imagination did that specifically to trick him, but it's not ever mentioned and uh, I would have liked something, something a little bit more solid there. I mean, if that's what they were going to do, then all they had to do was have the little robot say, yeah, you know, I knew you weren't going to draw this if you still had it, so I had to make you think you dreamed it all up. 
Yeah, exactly. So, this is actually not an issue that I have with it, but upon Googling this manga and reading, like, reviews of it, this manga caused a lot of controversy, because people viewed it as glorifying plagiarism, which I feel is just a complete misreading of this manga. Mm -hmm. Just a complete misunderstanding about what it's about, but, like, I'll get into that and what I think it did well. Yeah, I saw that too, where people, like, reviewed bombed it in Japan. Yeah, an additional thing of, like, why it failed. First of all, I don't see this manga really going after this 14 chapters is kind of the perfect length i don't know what you would do after this point like it would get boring then terms of reading it i was like this does not have 60 chapters worth of material i would have said maybe another five or so to fix some pacing but unless he like he's getting like fetch quests for lack of a better term from the microwave i don't know how you could have stretched this out for like two years this series is a much smaller story than shonen jump is typically used to telling and not just in terms of the stakes but also in terms of the cast size we have, like, five characters on this character list, but really the only two characters are Sasaki and Aino. They're the only real characters that matter. Yeah. And, yeah, it was a good way to tell their story, and it ended kind of right when it was done. Yeah, and then going to that, though, I feel like, as you said, this is really low stakes, and it reminded me of Robot Laser Beam, which was a series about golf, and they tried to make golf sound really exciting. <laughs> this is, like, manga, like, there's a limit to how exciting this can be. I'm not really stressing out too much if, like, the world's most perfect manga doesn't get created, you know? Yeah. But clearly, this dude is, like, stressing out every single day. The whole time, like, I'm still like, dude, this is about making fucking manga. You're not saving lives here, and they really wanted you to feel like that. And I know they try to explain why it matters so much. I'm still like, you know, we've got a thousand years of human history of media production. It's really not that big a deal if this one author can't create her magnum opus. David, David, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. I'm just saying Chainsaw Man already exists, so, like, you know, it's like... (laughs) I do think that's also a valid point for this section, which is that I think that this manga simply does not resonate with everybody. This is a manga that is kind of made by and for artists and people who write and people who create things. And it talks about like specific feelings and like this extreme desire to create and the anxiety about trying to make the best work you can and the terror about what'll happen if you don't and if you fail. And like not everybody goes through those emotions and goes through those situations, especially not at age 14, which is kind of the target audience for Shonen Jump, which goes back into why the fact that the main character is 25 might have contributed to the series' downfall. Mm -hmm. Chris, how about you? I really bought into the part where, in this one instance, at least, him making the perfect manga was a very important thing. And I get where you're coming from, where, okay, yeah, it's, it's just a manga, it doesn't really matter. And maybe it's because I haven't read as much. But, I mean, you're gonna find your audience And I mean, we should see it as podcasters too. It's like, we're not going to make a podcast that's for everybody, but for the people that it's important to, it's really important for us to make something that they're going to be happy to listen to. And I think that that's why I'm okay with it, because even if on a grand scale, yeah, it's not that important, I believe that it is that important to Sasaki. Yeah. Plus, I don't want to be the reason that a little girl dies. Yeah, that too. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. I did have one last thought. So Bakuman just eats the lunch of this series topic. So for reference, Bakuman is a very successful series that ran, I think, maybe six or seven years ago. And that was the meta, let's make a manga about making manga. And it was created by the people who made Death Note. So these were guys that knew what they were doing. Literally, it's like, imagine if you had a series about Aino and her quest to become, you know, this teenage manga artist. And 
just there's so many things the series can't go into because people are going to say, I already read Bakuman. Why would I want to reread the same topic? And that meant this really had to think of ways of addressing similar issues without just copying it, which is ironic because the series is about plagiarism as a major theme. Yeah. Which is why I think like a big part of Bakuman was your relationship with your editor, which just kind of skimps over because I think they just didn't want to go into a topic that was very important to that series. But also being like six years ago, how long does it take for somebody to age out of reading Shonen Jump? I don't think people super age out of it. Like One Piece, it's the second highest selling comic series in the world. It is second only to Superman. It's beaten Batman. Wow. So some things just become iconic. Death Note, for instance, though, that was actually a series that was very popular with people in our age group because that is a series literally about serial killers and stuff. And that was probably on the upper end of how mature a Shonen Jump series could be. <laughs> And so, to be honest, I don't know a good answer, but it's definitely, it's a lot of people will just stick with Shonen Jump, even as they become, like, adults, and they get to the point where they just read it with their kids. I mean, hey, that old man in this comic was still reading Shonen Jump. Yeah, though he was in Shonen Jump, so he had a little bit of a bias. (laughs) I also see this as, you know, this story is coming out six years later, you can catch new younger people who want to catch something from the beginning as it's coming out, rather than having to catch up on however many chapters of Bakuman had come out already. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> we didn't have a lot to talk about in the failure section, which is good because I can definitely tell from just discussing with you guys ahead of time that this was a series that we particularly enjoyed. So Jordan, why don't you lead off the discussion with the areas that's really struck to you as strengths of this series? This series like really struck an emotional chord with me. You could probably tell from how I've been talking about it. Like it just really delved into what it means to create and why we do it. Throughout the whole series, the main character keeps talking about how I want to make a manga that everyone in the world can enjoy. And Aino also says, I want to make a manga that everyone in the world can enjoy. But what happens is that in the process of trying to do that, they completely destroy themselves. You know, not only has Sasaki destroyed his own mental health, Aino winds up literally killing herself by death from exhaustion. What's even more sad is just before she dies, there's this moment where she's like, yes, I've done it. I can do this. She shut everybody out. She's working 20 And she just has this moment where, wait, why am I drawing manga again? And then she dies. And that, like, hit me like an emotional, like, truck. Because it was this moment where, um, she mentions earlier that in order to create a series for everybody, you can't put too much of yourself, too much of your own personality into it, because that will make something less relatable to everybody. But in the process of doing that, it, like, totally made her lose the ability to enjoy what she was creating because she was unable to actually like express herself. It became about what worked for everybody else and not enough about what worked for her. And I think that that's a really interesting way of looking at things. In addition, like the way that um, Sasaki creates manga based on a pre-existing one, well, that's what literally every manga author ever has done. I mean, you're going to accuse this manga of glorifying plagiarism. Have you looked at Shonen Jump? Have you read Guardian of the Witch? (laughs) I'm going to say most people have not. There is some unoriginal ass shit that gets in there, okay? That's just a thing that happens. That's in all mediums. Everybody is copying each other. And Sasaki is unable to perfectly replicate Aino's art because he's not Aino. And he has to learn, well, what series works best for me? Mm -hmm. I just found this series very inspiring. On an artistic level, I started drawing after I finished this series. I was like, damn, man, I really just want to create now, you know? Yeah, I was thinking about that too, how it's just 
sounds like it's fun to like make pilots and Jordan and I, we worked on a comic at some point, so maybe this will be our inspiration to actually try again. Yeah, I'll remember things from this manga, I think, for a long time to come. I really think that was the strongest, it's just the themes of the series and how I don't really think there's been many series that really dealt with human psychology in such a way, in like such a realistic way, where, you know, not just like PTSD, which I think Shonen Jump isn't afraid of just because it's so easy to like demonstrate, but stuff like, you know, anxiety, depression, and how like depression is more than just feeling sad. It's, you know, it's a feeling of being worse than everyone else, feeling you're not good enough. Like you talked about imposter syndrome. Like this is probably the first series I've ever read where imposter syndrome was like a main theme of a series. Yeah. And so that was really interesting. There is a four page spread towards the very end where Sasaki basically did Zawarudo and then spent 10 years in Dio's world writing this incredible magnum opus. And then he just hands it to Aino. And it makes her remember that the reason why she got into manga was just because she liked drawing. And that was just a really beautiful moment. Isn't that the same ending as Ratatouille with the reviewer? I haven't seen Ratatouille, David. You've never seen? What the fuck? I know. Chris, have you seen Ratatouille? Even I've seen Ratatouille, and I have people who swear I never watch movies. We'll see. People claim you never watch movies, but I actually never watch movies. <laughs> I guess just to go into detail, like the ending of Ratatouille is there's like this reviewer who's very harsh and he eats a food that is so great. It brings him back to his childhood and it makes him think about how, you know, the reason for reviewers is because he gets to experience all these different foods and it's not just, you know, to critique. Yeah. And so I felt that was a very similar kind of feeling that they were trying to embody with how the series inspired the other main character to not destroy herself to create this manga but just be you know enjoy the process for what it is the quality will come as long as she you know is actually enjoying what she's doing yeah that's just a message that like ah, it just really hits me oh man like there's a line in those pages where uh, sasaki says as long as someone else out there in the world gets it even if you're just two of a kind wouldn't that be a great stroke of luck and man it makes me tear up dude yeah it has such a romantic like beautiful view on art and the act of creation I love it. This was definitely a very unique series in a lot of ways, and I can see why, just this was not the place for it. Yeah. One other thing that's completely unrelated is I also want to talk about how the art was fantastic, which is no surprise because it was in our split team. I wish they had actually shown more of like the different artists' art, but I know that's a really particular challenge for an artist to emulate other people's art styles, but this guy knew what he was doing, so I don't doubt he could have if he had wanted to. Oh, the art is fantastic. It's so polished, they do interesting things with panels, the compositions are cool. It is a really, like, well-made manga. Yeah. Chris, how about you? What were some things that you enjoyed about the series that we haven't discussed yet? I really enjoyed the little bit of an insight that they had into how Shonen Jump works. Because for me, I have no idea. And I like knowing how this kind of thing happens. I like knowing that, you know, they had the real quick explanation of you get your one shot and then maybe you get a series. Or, you know, you get your editor and this is how you actually get your series to happen. And how it wasn't, like, super detail bogged down of this is how everything happens. But just kind of thrown in, like, normally you have your dumbass character who has to get everything explained to them. They didn't really have that here. It just naturally came up in a conversation. Yeah, I love that stuff. I think it is so interesting to kind of see how the sausage is made, I guess, in this manner, at least, because it's not disgusting. It's always interesting. Some 
something that we talk about sometimes is that it's really, really hard to make a Shonen Jump manga weekly. The burnout is real. This manga is, like, about real shit that happens. We've mentioned it before in a lot of manga, there is, like, a significant quality drop after a certain point, and it just feels like the artist got exhausted. Yeah. Not in this manga, just in general. Like, it is exhausting work. And so, of course, in this one, they have to have assistance, and they have to work together, and they have to, like, be a team, and they have to be on schedule as much as they can. It's rough, and that's why, like, I feel there's been some shift, like, the series that talked about Kaiju, number eight, the creator of the series, is just like, I can't do this weekly. I need one week off a month to actually take a break, and I really am appreciative that Shonen Jump is actually letting series do that now. Like, there's been more every other week. I think monthly series have become bigger, too, and so that's great that creators are really finally getting not having to half-kill themselves. Like, we've seen the effects. The creator of Naruto is like, physically, I can't draw anymore. It was just too much. The creator of One Piece is aged 40 years in the 20 years he's been doing it. It's like, you know, how President One term takes 10 years off your life. <laughs> I really get the feeling that working on Shonen Jump is just nothing but crunch. Yeah. Oh my god, I can't even imagine. Out of all of us, I'm probably the one who has the closest to that, because I've got the weekly show. But I can go and I can record, like, months ahead of things already recorded, so all I had to do was edit. Yeah. You know, this week, I'm just not putting out an episode because world events and the grind gets you. You just have a time sometimes where you're editing and you just don't feel like editing anymore. Absolutely. And I'm not even getting paid. <laughs> yeah, neither are we. We do this for the fun of it. There's a moment where one of the assistants, Igarashi says, yeah, I kept making comic pitches and they kept getting rejected and I kept doing it so much that I lost the ability to tell what was good and bad manga, which is something that every artist can tell you happens. There's a point when you're working on a painting or a drawing or a song where you just lose the ability to tell if something even looks good or not. You've been staring at it too long. You just cannot see it anymore. Definitely had that happen. I legitimately have to go play Mario Kart so I can concentrate on anything else. <laughs> the only thing for that stuff is to take a break. That's what it means. Yeah. And I just really liked how um, in the version of events that was not altered by the uh, little robot thing, what I really love is how Sasaki, he actually quits. Well, he quits trying to get into Shonen Jump, goes back home and gets a job, but is still working on manga the whole time. And then about eight years later, he submits the comic to Shonen Jump and gets in. That's a really good message to put in here. It's saying that, you know, sometimes you fail. That doesn't mean you fail forever. Just as long as you keep going eventually, like, you'll be able to get there, which I think is an incredibly inspiring message. Yeah, and I agree. So, I think we definitely had a lot of really positive things to say, and as we alluded to, I think, in, like, the character and some earlier sections, there are a lot of things that this series really could have done to deliver its message in a better way, and I think this series really could have been something special if it really had the chance to kind of polish some of the issues that it had. So, I think it's best just to start off with the low-hanging fruit as we've already discussed this series definitely was not designed to be in shonen jump this needed to have an expiration date this needed to say it's going to be x chapters because as we talked about there was no way this could be 60 or 100 chapters i think if he had said i am creating a three volume series you know for context this was two volumes and said this is going to be the full series there's no fat to this it's an idea it's a really interesting idea especially since he really took it in a direction that wasn't so similar to bakuman which is what i was expecting at first yeah but beyond that besides adding like a lot of filler fetch quest where you have to keep doing things to prevent her from dying. I don't know how this could have lasted more than, you know, 20 to 30 chapters. Yeah. The only thing I can think of is if they started following a new main character and I don't know how well
well that would have gone because essentially you're starting a new manga there. You just kind of have the built-in readership of the ones who had read this one already. Yeah, there are a couple things that might have been answered later. There's one moment where the robot starts communicating to Sasaki by moving iron fillings around. And at one point, it makes the symbol for uh, the square root of 144. So, like, I was waiting the whole manga for, like, that to matter, and it doesn't. Because that's 12. That symbolized that, I think it was symbolized because he had a year's left of issues left. Oh! Maybe? That's just a guess. That didn't occur to me, but, like, I was just looking all throughout the manga for, like, either square root of 144 or for 12 to show up again, and it just never did. And it's presented in a way where, like, I feel like it's supposed to matter. It was one of the lottery numbers, wasn't it? Was it? Well, he just straight up gave him the lottery number. Yeah. The robot gives Sasaki lottery numbers because Sasaki has refused to use any of the profits from the White Knight series for himself because he feels so guilty. Yeah. But Sasaki doesn't use those uh, lottery numbers, but he does check them against the actual result in order to verify, oh shit, this little robot actually can see the future. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't know what they would have done. I uh, see this series continuing too much longer, even if it wasn't canceled. I mean, yeah. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. I don't know where it would have (laughs) gone. This is the episode of Half Takes. That's fine. Chris, what do you think? What would you have said it could have done differently to really improve itself? I would have liked to have seen more from the microwave, honestly, because when you told me that this was one of the options I had, I heard the title of Time Paradox Ghost Rider, and it was just instant, oh, fuck, I'm doing that. I don't care what it's about. Yeah, right? That's such a great title. I was expecting more time paradox stuff. And then all of a sudden you just get diverging timelines. Everything is new now. And maybe I'm spoiled, you know, but that's not really much of a time paradox. (laughs) Well, there's a great moment where Sasaki is sitting there contemplating the timeline split. And he's like, wait, so this timeline split off. So I know is still in that future creating white knights to be sent back here, which means that I'm not changing that future. And he builds builds this little hypothesis on how it works, and he's just like, but that's literally just from watching sci-fi. That's all I know. (laughs) So did the robot save her, or did the robot just create another version of her that could possibly die? Even before like, he knew it was all going to work out, he splits the timeline off by throwing the future Shonen Jump back into our present. He doesn't know if it's going to work then. I see. You're talking about, is this a future Trunks scenario, where uh, even though he's trying to save N, I know, he's not saving the I know from his timeline. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of feel like you're not really supposed to think that too hard about it, because the time paradox thing is more or less just kind of just a structure to help the things that happen in the manga occur. Yeah, I wouldn't stress the rules of time travel in this series, because clearly they didn't really care about it. It's not the point. I mean, the ultimate point of sci-fi is to create a situation situation where uh, different situations happen that raise questions that you otherwise normally wouldn't be able to raise, which is what this manga does. Yeah. I just really like time travel stuff, and I really appreciate how they went in this one. It's like, maybe this is how it works, blah, 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 but I don't know anything. I'm an idiot. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's the other thing. There isn't really, aside from the missing Shonen Jump, a plot hole in how the time travel works because nobody is like, let me tell you how it works. 
Yeah, they don't explain anything, which was good. Yeah, it actually really worked here. Because he literally doesn't tell a single person about what's going on in his apartment. It's less sci-fi and more magical realism, where this is supposed to take place in a world that is at least very similar to our own, if not just straight up the real world, and just this crazy magical thing happened. The further and further I read into this, the more I thought that that first issue that he thinks that disappeared, he probably just sleepily was reading it in bed and it fell under the bed and he could never find it. <laughs> I would buy that from a manga construction situation. You have to have that series of jump disappear because if he thinks he's it's real, then he really is kind of committing plagiarism. Like, after the first issue, it's kind of a situation where, oh shit, I'm in too deep now. It is kind of a storytelling mechanic, but I think it works. Yeah. The last thing is just, as I talked about, I had an alternative idea of how they could have handled the missing Shonen Jump issue with that whole, like, what if the issue, like, started disappearing quicker and quicker over time and he had to become more reliant on his skills instead of him, like, just hitting a wall? So what do you guys think? Do you think that would have been a more interesting story? Because I know it would have been different. That raises a question that I haven't thought of before, which is, do you think Aino was always supposed to die? Because maybe something like that was going to happen, and then the author found out that, oh, this manga is getting cancelled. Because, like, we don't find out Aino's gonna die until a few chapters in. I think the whole Aino dying thing was probably planned, but you can see, like, there's a huge amount of time jumps and stuff, and I think there was probably struggles that he was going to go through while he was making the series unrelated to it, mm-hmm. that I think they just skipped, because he was like, I want to finish this story, and this is clearly not doing very well. Like, 14 chapters is probably the shortest series we've read, and I think he probably had you know, like an entire volume worth of material he just cut. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, you don't want to be like, haha, I'm glad you got cancelled, but I mean, I'm, I'm kind of glad that this series was able to be this short thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a Matsuma Security, where it got cancelled, but it made the best possible ending ever because it got cancelled. Yeah. Which, for reference, Chris, what happened was Matsuma Security is like a gag manga. In the last issue, the dude talks about all these adventures. Like, it, there's like a time skip, and he's talking to the other maker. He's like, wow, man, we really want on some crazy adventures, and he's listing all this stuff that never, ever happened in the series, and she calls him out on it, and she's like, I don't remember any of that happening. <laughs> And that was, like, one of the funniest things I had ever read in a manga. And it was only funny because it got canceled prematurely, so he could just throw away all that material he was planning on using for a joke at the very end. Nice. I also really like the last panel of this series. It's very understated. It is just two panels of Aino and Sasaki just, like, ten years later. It's just them drawing, but they're smiling. It doesn't say they went on to be successful, they went on to produce a bunch of successful Shonen Jump mangas or whatever. It just shows them drawing and being happy. I thought that was beautiful. That is definitely one of the tattoo moments from me reading this. Hey. Tattoo moment? Like, I would potentially get a tattoo of it. (laughs) Oh, that's cute. You know, now that you're mentioning it, maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea to get, like, a tattoo of that little robot guy. Or the melted microwave. (laughs) I'll keep that in mind. He's not gonna do it, is he? (laughs) No. No. Jordan's gonna get an anime tattoo once we hit a thousand listeners per episode. You know what? If it makes us get a thousand listeners and a hundred bucks per month on Patreon, I'll totally get an anime tattoo. That's a fair deal. We'll put that in the show notes and see if we can make it happen. (laughs) So why don't we shift things over to the miscellaneous thoughts? Now, Jordan, I know you have something that you said you really want to talk about. One thing that I thought was super interesting about this is how this manga kind of interacts with itself. It's sort of an illustration of 
what the manga itself is talking about. One of the main messages of this is that you really can't make art for literally everybody. It's just not something that's tenable. It's not something that you're really meant to do. And it's not like necessarily a, a way to make great art. The manga itself is an illustration of its point. I mean, obviously, that's a little bit harder to plan because it's just like, I'll just make something that resonates super hard with people. That's easy, right? You know, I'll just do that. <laughs> yeah. You never see much of White Knight or of the series that he creates later or the series that I know creates later, which is intentional because, I mean, if you're setting something up to be the best manga in the world, I mean, it's a little bit like uh, the Tenacious D song. This is not the best manga in the world. This is just a tribute. Oh, <laughs> Exactly. It's like, in order to do that, he would have to make a manga that I, the reader, would agree. Yes, this manga is truly entertaining to everybody in the world. So I totally get it. But when they are actually laying out the plot of the manga, it is super generic by design. That's like the point is that it's an incredibly generic shonen manga and goes to the point that in order to create something like truly one of a kind, you have to not worry as much about what works for everybody and worry about what works for yourself. Yeah, I'm just thinking if we could do like a team six word summary where we just say this is not the greatest manga in the world. No, this is just a tribute. <laughs> the White Knight manga really does work like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, Tim McGuffin. Chris, last episode, we uh, Stealth Symphony, there was an item that was literally called a MacGuffin. Yeah, it was just like, this is a MacGuffin. Well, okay, then let's just go up right on the nose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I mean, speaking of pulling things right out of real life, I really appreciate that at 46 chapters, Sasaki had to start doing his own thing when the author's previous thing had run for 46 chapters. <laughs> that is pretty perfect. Oh, man, was that intentional? Maybe. <laughs> it had to have been. Yeah. He could have picked any number for that. There's no way he didn't do it on purpose. I would not be surprised if the author feels that this manga is incredibly autobiographical. You can feel the author's fingerprints on pretty much every aspect of this. Like, it kind of feels lived in and experienced. Yeah. I think my last miscellaneous thought was, <laughs> just, I still love that editor dude who is like an honorary, I'm calling him now an honorary wholesome anime dad. So what happens is the main character breaks into like the Shonen Jump offices <laughs> to like give him the White Knight pilot. The editor's like, no, fuck off. I've like read your shit. I've done you so many favors. I'm not reading anything more from you, which is, as Jordan said, is a very reasonable response. Yeah. But the editor-in-chief was like, oh, what's this here? The manga isn't responsible for trespassing. Let's give it a read. And he's like, wow, this is super great. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is like just a very wholesome human being. He also remembers Sasaki because Sasaki had previously submitted something that he got a runner-up prize for. And the editor-in-chief is like, I read that series. I liked it. So it was just kind of this warm moment where it's like, oh, wow, he's giving me like some kind of positive reinforcement, which is amazing when you need it. I know we've kind of danced around the idea that this is glorifying plagiarism, which I just think is really interesting here because you're pulling something from the future, so it doesn't really exist yet. And he's got that little existential crisis going the whole time of, should I be doing this? Am I just going to screw over everybody who's working on it with me now that we're doing it? And then once he finds out Aino could possibly die, oh crap, I don't want Aino to fucking die. I have to keep doing this. 
Yeah, and he has to turn the comic into his own thing in order to continue and possibly save her. Like, this manga is actually not pro-plagiarism. He spends the entire manga feeling like total shit because he plagiarized. And it's about him turning what he copied into his own thing, which is just the story of art. <laughs> I've had this comic idea kind of sitting in my head, and whenever I have people on my show to talk about things that they've made, you know, it just kind of naturally comes up, and every single one of them has told me, yeah, I mean, you're going to find similarities in your thing to other works, but make your thing anyway. Yeah. Like, when I was on your show, we were talking about Fist of the North Star. Fist of the North Star is literally Mad Max starring Bruce Lee, and that's intentionally what it was. It was intended to be a story following a guy who looks like Bruce Lee. Like, it was a ripoff, and it turned into something else. I think this series was definitely, like, a lot of really, like, big ideas to talk about and not so much the minutiae, unlike some other series. So why don't we turn things to our final verdict and really give our kind of overall ideas of what we thought of the series. Jordan, why don't you start us off with your six-word summary? Okay, let me bring it up, because I did write it. Not how, but why we create. Ooh, I like that. How about you, Chris? The microwave? What the fuck barbecue? <laughs> I don't know how acronyms fit into that, but I'll allow it. Mine was Buckleman colon Steinsgate Sad Boy Edition. <laughs> For context, Steinsgate is another series that this really, really leaned on as inspiration, and that is about a scientist who accidentally creates a time machine and gets objects from the future as well. See, I laughed, but I actually don't know anything about Steinsgate or Bakuman, so... Steinsgate is great. <laughs> I need to rewatch it. But yeah, so essentially, yeah, this series is literally if Steinsgate and Bakuman were combined into one series, like, by Fusion Dance. Nice. <laughs> I know Steinsgate has games, and that is about it. Yeah, it's based on a visual novel series. Ah. Okay, and then why don't we do flop or not? So, Chris, what do you think? I don't really think this one's a flop. I don't have the context y'all have, but I really think that this one set out to do what it wanted to do, and, you know, it didn't have the 60-chapter length that other things have had, but it finished its story in a really, I think, well-written way. I agree. So you're saying you also consider it not a flop, Jordan? Well, here's the thing. It depends on how we define flop. If a flop is something that had no chance of continuing and shouldn't have continued, then in that sense, you could consider this a flop. But in terms of quality, absolutely not a flop. I really, really like this series. I think, actually, this series was interesting that I didn't like it at first, but then it really grew on me over time. Like, this had a very slow start, which is something, I guess, um, we just had a lot of things to talk about, so I didn't want to really go into it. But yeah, like, the first chapter, just you really don't know what's going on, and then it just slowly starts building, which, you know, it was one of the struggles with the series, is that series that need builds like this just don't have that kind of time in Shonen Jump. But yeah, I would definitely say this was not a flop, and this was one series that I really, really enjoyed. And so with that, though, Jordan, we bring it to our segment of first is this the best series we have ever read so far dude it might be it's tough i mean i do think that this edges out mitama which is impressive because that was a really fun series this just had such a emotional resonance with me too like personally I totally agree. So I think this series takes a crown as the best series we've read so far. And now, since all of us thought that this series was not a flop, we will do our last little segment before we go to shoutouts, which is just, how does this compare to any of our favorite series? So Chris, I know you are not familiar with Chainsaw Man, but what would you say, like, is there a series that you think is, like, really kind of what you hold all media standards to in, like, the comic world, and how would you say that this series compares to it? Like, what's the best comic running right now? Yeah. So, best gets really fun for me, but maybe the most fun thing I'm reading right now is series called Freaks and Gods. I'm unfamiliar. Uh, what's that about? That is about 
three slash four people who are trapped in a tunnel that takes them to different places across dimensions, and they have to solve superhero type problems. But one of them is a Egyptian god who really wants to die, but he can't because he's just sick of being stuck everywhere. One of them is not exactly a British werewolf, but something along those lines, who's also a knight and has a sword that can sense out danger. And the other one slash two of them are two people who are alternate dimension versions of each other, and they kind of blink back and forth on which one is in that reality. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, that sounds good. I haven't read a lot of Western stuff because I keep reading manga, so it'd be nice to get back into it. That's the problem with that I'm having on my show, too, is I'm just not being able to read things and play things because I'm too busy reading and playing things for the show. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, dude, I gotta read like 40 chapters of like this shitty series, so I can't read anything for fun. (laughs) Chris, would you consider this better or worse than that series? I would say this is worse, but only because one of them has to be. Yeah. So, Jordan, similar question. You knew this was coming. Better or worse than Chainsaw Man, where this is interesting, where there's a really strong parallel. Like, for instance, Chris, for context, there is a scene in Chainsaw Man where one character almost dies, and the main character gives her a bath to help her overcome her PTSD because she just can't sleep anymore because of how terrified she was over this monster that almost killed her. And they even are just sitting in the bath, and she's like, why does this not feel sexual at all? Like, that's the kind of, like, way that that series approaches, like, human mental health. Yeah. Man, I don't know. It's like asking me, uh, like, what's better? this really interesting cool action series or like this incredibly like well acted period drama or something it's hard to compare them like this is the first time this question has been hard I think I still gotta give it to Chainsaw Man, but this is the closest it's been. I would have to agree. I am impressed that we finally have a series, because I think it's always been a joke that we compared to Chainsaw Man, but if this had really, like, not had any issues, it might have been better than Chainsaw Man if it really had just made those changes that we suggested, because a lot of the changes are making it, like, bad to decent. Well, this would have really made it, like, a masterpiece if he had adjusted the series like we talked about. Here's the thing. I would recommend more people read Chainsaw Man than the amount of people I would recommend read Time Paradox Ghostwriter. But to the people that I do suggest it to, I think it's fantastic. I agree. All right. So let's uh, wrap things up with shout outs. So first of all, I want to give props to Jordan for making the awesome theme song that you heard at the start of this episode. I also want to give props to Aaliyah for doing the awesome cover art. This one was pretty clear cut what we wanted to parody. We had a few different ideas, ultimately between Back to the Future and Hot Tub Time Machine. And that's so Raven. But we thought we'd go with the most iconic. So we hope you guys enjoy. And of course, I want to really thank Nigel Francis for being our generous art benefactor that lets us get these awesome pieces of art made for the show. And then I also want to give a thanks to Tucker for his awesome pronunciation guide. A few days after you are listening to this episode, we will be able to put out his pronunciation guide where he really breaks down kind of how you not only say the names, but also what the names mean and maybe what they could have meant for the series. In particular, if you like that kind of stuff, his episode on Stealth Something is really interesting where one character, Jig, had a different way of translating his name, so people went back and forth, and he kind of goes into detail of how a situation like that can happen in the Japanese language. Also, of course, Chris, I really want to thank you for taking the time to be on our show today. Is there anything that you want to share with the audience? Well, thank you for having me on. And, you know, if anybody wants to find me other places, you can check out my podcast, Play Comics, where I grab a guest and we look at video games based on comic properties and how well they stick to that source material. David has been on him previously to look at JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. At some point, probably in the future, depending on how release dates line up, Jordan was or will be on to talk about Fist of the North Star. I'm not sure how the timeline is going to work there. I feel like now that we've read this series, we're masters of crazy timeline shit. I know exactly how the Zelda timeline works now.
But, you know, it's a really fun show. And the good thing is, if you want to come on the show, you could head on over to playcomics.com, look at the Be a Guest page, see if there's a game that catches your eye, and just let me know, hey, I want to be on for that episode. And you don't have to edit it, because I get to. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, I would really like to thank David for continually editing these episodes. It takes a lot more time than you think it would take, and he puts in the effort, he gets it out on time. And yeah, thanks, man. David, close your ears for a second. Everybody, David does a really good job editing, and I don't want him to hear me say this now. I want him to hear me say it while he's editing. Like, you would have, you would have no, you, you guys have no idea how rambly and like, uh, just kind of repetitive this, uh, these, like, I'm, I'm stuttering horribly right now, but it probably doesn't sound like that because David edited it. These recordings are a lot less listenable without that editing. Oh, it's fine. And just for context listeners, when you are listening right now, we are at an hour and 34 minutes of audio. And speaking of our dear audience, I want to really thank everyone so far that has been sharing our show and liking us on Twitter, Facebook, and leaving us iTunes reviews. Cannot stress how much it helps us out. It really gets us a new audience. We are still on that path to trying to get a thousand listeners that we talked about. And now, as you guys hear, bonus incentive, if we get a thousand listeners on this episode, Jordan is going to get the robot from this series tattooed legally he has to get it now tattooed because of fcc guidelines because he said it on the show so i really look forward to jordan's new tattoo i cannot stress this enough it has to be at least 100 dollars monthly on patreon we don't even have a patreon so that's an interesting twist i know when we get it though this is a stretch goal for patreon yeah <laughs> i just want to give some shout outs the first one is to the anime research group it is a podcast about anime that most people never get the time to watch you can find them at anchor.fm slash anime research the next one is the surprise scenarios podcast two lifelong friends surprise each other each week with hypothetical scenario to how they would cope in a tight spot probably some scenarios that hopefully are not going to come true due to this election and you can find them on twitter at surprise underscore scenarios that sounds like a fun topic yeah i also want to give some shout outs to some friends of the show first the weeklies cooldown it's hosted by kami jace he was an awesome guest on our show he talks about weekly gaming news he's got an upcoming project so follow him to find out more as that develops the next one is below the line from kevin LaBuzz. he does a weekly newsletter where he goes into a lot of business topics really smart guy really terrific and it's just really been fun to read his insights every week about business especially he's gonna probably have some really great stuff about the impact of the election so you don't want to miss that and then finally as we talked about before i want to give a shout out to dan pecora and the snowflake sports podcast that is a podcast that is both covering sports covering politics very timely they're going to be talking about election results issues with polling why was it so off and then because they are legally obligated to talk about sports talking about the nfl week nine recap and you can find that at the snowflake sports podcast and all of these will be of course linked in the description below thank you so much for joining us you can find shonen flop on facebook and twitter at shonen flopcast and on our website shonenflop.com we're also on spotify itunes or wherever else you get your podcast this has been david this has been jordan and this has been chris and you've been listening to shonen flop keep on flopping floppers